welcome to the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Hey everyone, welcome to the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast. This is episode number 42, and today I am very honored to have a legendary name in sport and exercise science research, Professor Tim Noakes on the show. An emeritus professor at University of Cape Town, co-founder of the now prestigious Sport Science Institute of South Africa, he's published more than 750 scientific books and articles. In this episode, Professor Noakes shares his journey from initially studying medicine in the 1960s to discovering his true passion in exercise and sports science research. He first dives into the topic of hydration as he's seen the pendulum swing from marathon water stations every 10 miles to 20 years later, they were literally every mile of the race course and subsequent increases in things like hyponatremia that caused him to lobby for change in the current hydration guidelines. He also shares his insights into his central governor model of fatigue that he put forth in the late 1990s, highlighting the brain's key role in limiting exercise performance. And finally, he shares his personal story, how even as an elite endurance runner logging hundreds of kilometers per week, he developed type 2 diabetes and how he successfully controlled it with a low-carb diet. Professor Noakes' support of this nutrition approach also caused an uproar in South Africa and a subsequent course case that ensued. It's a mind-boggling, distressing, but ultimately triumphant tale that I'll let Professor Noakes tell in this episode. Incredible insights from Professor Noakes and a remarkable 40-year career in medicine, sport, and exercise nutrition research. I hope you enjoy the show. Please check out my layups and performance tips at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for everyone listening in. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with colleagues and friends. Much appreciated and enjoy the show. I'm joined today by Dr. Tim Noakes, an emeritus professor at University of Cape Town following his retirement from the Research Unit of Exercise Science and Sports Medicine. In 1995, he was a co-founder of the now prestigious Sports Science Institute of South Africa and has published more than 750 scientific books and articles. Professor Noakes has been cited more than 16,000 times in scientific literature, has won numerous awards, and authored many books, including The Lore of Running, Considered to be the Bible for Runners, Waterlogged, The Serious Problem of Overhydration in Endurance Sports, the Real Meal Revolution, Raising Superheroes, and since 2011, his autobiography, Challenging Beliefs, Memoirs of a Career. Professor Noakes, very honored to have you on the show today. My pleasure, Mark. Lovely to be with you. Well, listen, I have so many different questions I want to ask you, but perhaps we can start uh, by you sharing your journey from, from medical school to sport research and your work in endurance sports. Yes, indeed, Mark. So when I left uh, matriculated, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I decided eventually because Chris Barnard performed the first human heart transplant almost 50 years ago at the end of this, end of this year, I would want to do medicine. So I studied medicine and during medicine, I became interested in endurance sports, first in rowing and then in marathon running and ultra marathon running. And I was never really interested in medicine. I was interested more in the science and in preventive medicine. And so I immediately after I'd finished my hospital internship, I went into research and did my PhD in, in medicine and then started teaching sports science at the University of Cape Town. It was obviously a new discipline that hadn't been taught before. 
And uh, I've been doing that for the past, since, since 1981. My original focus was on running and marathon running and how you, how your metabolism during exercise. Uh, we then sort of moved on and more recently I got interested in what regulates exercise performance and that's called the central governor model of exercise. And we were able to show that the brain regulates exercise performance and that was of course quite a change because before that runners had believed that when, they, when their legs got tired then their performance went down. And what we showed is no, no, the fatigue you feel is purely an emotion generated by the brain and you, the brain is there to make sure you don't run into trouble during exercise. Mm. At the time that I was doing all this research, we were studying carbohydrates and we were funded by the carbohydrate industry. So naturally we said carbohydrates are very good for you. But in 2010, I discovered that from my own, from my own experience that carbohydrates had harmed me. I developed type 2 diabetes despite the fact that I'd run all these marathons. And I started looking into the role of a high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet and for the past six or seven years, I've been eating that diet and becoming more and more interested. And so my research has moved in that direction. The last three years of my life have been hijacked by a professional con misconduct trial against me for promoting the low-carb diet. And essentially what happened was that the dietitians of South Africa got very angry because more people were moving towards the, the high-fat diet and moving away from the low-fat diet. And that was causing them a problem because they'd only been trained to prescribe one diet and it wasn't the low-carb diet. And so they took action against me, reported me to my health professional council, and it's taken me three years to clear my name and my, my scientific integrity. And that's the, the good thing was we wrote a book about it and the book's coming out in a month's time and it's called Law of Nutrition, Challenging Traditional Dietary Guidelines or Dietary Beliefs. Well, sorry, try challenging conventional dietary beliefs. And it's it will tell you exactly how my life has gone, but particularly in the last three years. And it also is a very strong argument for why a low-carbohydrate diet is more beneficial for the majority of us. That's phenomenal. I mean, just so many uh, so many incredible insights throughout your career. You've, you've laid out a nice uh, summary of what we can discuss here today. So maybe we can circle back to just talk about hydration. You were running a lot of marathons in the 1960s and 70s. What were the original recommendations for hydration then? Oh, not to drink. Uh, we were told that if you drank, it was out of weakness. <laughs> and my great friend, Jackie Meckler, who won the Comrades Marathon, which is the epic ultra marathon in South Africa, 56 miles, and he won it five times, and he said that the goal was to see that you didn't drink during these races. You couldn't, he, he would be forced eventually to drink. But if he saw another a guy who was racing against drinking, he'd say he's weakening, and then he'd immediately increase his pace to pass the guy. So wow. that was the attitude. You only drank as a sign of weakness. <laughs> so... I then became quite involved in promoting drinking during exercise and, and helped get the law changed in this country. But it, it was, I wasn't the main driver behind a global change. And that by 1976, fluids were more frequently available during marathon races, probably every three kilometers. I think that was kind of what happened by 1976. Then in this country, what happened by 1981, fluid was being provided every mile, every 1.6 kilometers in ultra marathon and marathon races. 
and what happened in our, the first South African ultramarathon in which there was so much fluid available and, and a female athlete became unconscious during the race and she almost died. She wrote to me and eventually we worked out that she'd overdrunk and she'd become waterlogged. And so that started a 30-year study of how much fluid should you be drinking during exercise and what happens if you overdrink. And then we wrote the book, as you mentioned, Waterlogged, which showed that the sports drink industry actively, they didn't falsify, but they overemphasized the role of hydration in performance. There never was any evidence for it, but they managed to suggest you should drink ahead of thirst, you should drink as much as tolerable during exercise. And the consequence of that was a number of people got really sick and some people died during marathon, ultramarathon, triathlons, and in the military. And the book describes exactly why that happens and why it should never have happened. Fortunately, by 2007, the drinking guidelines changed back to drink to thirst and, and not ahead of thirst. And, and that's the key. We now know as long as you're not thirsty during exercise, your performance will be optimized. It's when you drink ahead of thirst or less than thirst that your performance is impaired. And can we circle back and maybe perhaps explain to folks, you know, what happens when someone has this exercise-associated hyponatremia? Well, it took us a long time to work out that drinking, overdrinking isn't the only cause because probably many people overdrink during exercise and particularly during the 80s and 90s. But what happens is they urinate, and so they would soon learn, I don't want to start, I wouldn't want to urinate every five minutes, so therefore I should stop drinking. And I think that's the self-regulation. What happens in people with hyponatremia is that they over-secrete the hormone, antidiuretic hormone, which is an incredibly powerful hormone, which inhibits all urine production. So what's happening is these people are over-drinking, and they're becoming overhydrated, but the body's responding as if it's dehydrated. And so it excretes this incredibly powerful hormone, antidiuretic hormone. And so the people retain the water and they don't pass urine. So they think, gosh, I'm becoming dehydrated. I'm not passing any urine. And if they do pass any urine, it's very, very concentrated. So it's very, very dark brown or dark yellow. And as far as they're concerned, they're feeling so sick because they're dehydrated when in fact what's happened is that they've retained the water, their blood sodium levels drop, and then the water, instead of staying mainly in the bloodstream, goes into the brain, into the cells. The brain swells and you lose consciousness. And unfortunately, if too much water gets into the brain, you stop breathing and you die as a consequence. And so there are deaths from respiratory failure in people who have drunk too much during exercise but they have to have that abnormality they have to over secrete antidiuretic hormone and we estimate that probably 20 percent of people who over drink also over secrete antidiuretic hormone and so they're at risk of developing hyponatremia the other 80 percent can over drink but they're fine because they're not over secreting antidiuretic hormone but but we don't know who over secretes adh and who doesn't so we must just give the global advice that people shouldn't overdrink ever because it's it's not necessary and it's dangerous. Absolutely, it's insightful, so insightful. And you know, from an evolutionary perspective, can you connect the dots there between this idea of telling people to drink all day and versus just innately, you know, the brain's mechanism of drinking to thirst? Yeah, well, well, we think humans evolved as long-distance runners in the heat in Africa and. 
there's clear evidence that in certain parts of the world, the, the, the early hunter-gatherers had excellent runners who would outrun the antelope over a period of four to six hours in the heat. And they would run when the temperature was 30 degrees centigrade uh, at 10 o'clock, and they would start chasing the antelope. And they had to catch the antelope within six hours because then it would start cooling after four o'clock, and the antelope would be fine. So the reason was that the antelope don't sweat, so that they can't regulate their body temperature. And as long as you keep them moving, they will eventually be overheat. And then they be, as they overheat, they'll stop exercising, they'll become paralyzed, and they're easy to, to kill. So the key was that you couldn't be stopping to drink. Well, there was no fluid probably anyway. You couldn't stop and find water and then think you could carry on chasing the antelope because by that time the antelope would have would have hidden in the in the shade and lost its and would have cooled down. So we suspect that the very best hunters were those who were very resistant to water loss. They could become severely dehydrated and they didn't need to drink and they didn't get excessively thirsty and they were able to keep running despite being quite seriously dehydrated. Wow, it's so interesting and in such a contrast to how you know you mentioned <laughs> industry changing our 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 viewpoint of hydration and, and changing the recommendations and getting, you know, athletes in particular to really sort of pre-hydrate. Can you talk about how industry impacted that, uh, those recommendations? Well, what, what industry realized as they started to promote sports drinks was that selling sports drinks to marathon runners was never going to make anyone wealthy. They had to sell it to the people going to the gym. And now if you go to the gym for an hour, you, you're not going to become sufficiently dehydrated, even need to need to drink. But so their, their policy was, well, let's make people believe that if you drop one sweat, drop of sweat, if you lose one drop of sweat, you're at risk of dying from heat stroke. And that's what they managed to do. They managed to get the scientists to, stay, to say such nonsense that any level of dehydration is damaging to your health and risks heat stroke. And that is, it's nonsensical. It's not supported by the science. So then we got the people working out in the gyms who felt they had to drink a liter or a liter and a half of fluid every hour that they exercised. But that was the target market. It wasn't the marathon runners. But then the marathon runners got the idea that if the gym people are having to drink 1.2 liters per hour, each hour that they're in the gym, gosh, I'm a marathon runner and I'm out there for three or four hours, I need to drink even more. And that's where the problem arose. It was industry was selling its product to not to marathon runners it was to get everyone who exercised to drink and the truth is that 90 percent of people who exercise for less than an hour don't need to drink and there never should have been a market but the industry managed to generate that market very well said and of course you know in 2007 you mentioned the american college of sports medicine changing its guidelines are there still reforms that you'd like to suggest? Well, yeah, the ACSM still says that you can't be more than 2% dehydrated. And that's, there's no evidence whatsoever that that is true. So they're hanging on. They, did, they said, okay, we were wrong about the one bit, but we're still not wrong. You must never let your body become less than 2% dehydrated. And that's nonsensical because, because during exercise you lose glycogen and you burn up fat. And that can quite easily constitute more than 2% of your weight loss. Sorry, that can constitute a weight loss of more than 2%. So 
you could be 100% hydrated and be 2 to 3% dehydrated. Uh, I've lost 2 to 3% of weight because of you burnt up fat and carbohydrate. So that is a nonsensical statement. And it's not supported by the evidence. The evidence says that as long as you're not thirsty, your performance will be maximized and your health will be fine. And eventually they'll get around to that. But I think it's still industry control of, of the guidelines. It's still strong. It's still there. Absolutely. And you know, if we talk about another limiting factor in performance, which you mentioned at the outset, was this notion that you proposed of the central governor model and how the brain regulates exercise. Can you explain that again to listeners? Well, when I started, we all taught the AV Hill model, which is that lactic acid released in the muscles causes the muscles to get tired. And so you have to stop exercising as a result. So it was a direct effect of lactic acid in the muscles. And over a period of 10 or 15 years, we did experiments which made us suggest that that couldn't be the case, that there was something else more, more complex about it. And eventually I realized that it had to be the brain that was in re regulating performance. And I, I came to that conclusion because of the science that we had done, and we'd never been able to show that the muscles were running out of oxygen. There never was any evidence. And so if the muscles weren't running out of oxygen, then how could that be the cause of their fatigue? But I think what really turned my mind was the realization that uh, we worked with heart patients and they exercise and, and very seldom do they run into medical problems despite the, the fact that they've got a very limited exercise capacity. So it's like there's something that's protecting them. And then the same with exercising in the heat. We realized that millions of people exercise in the heat every day, but not hundreds of thousands die of heat stroke. Heat stroke is very, very uncommon, again, suggesting that there's some regulation going on. And then the key one, again, perhaps, is that people climb Everest, and of course they do die on Everest, but that's usually on the way down, but you would think that if, if oxygen deficiency was such a, a damaging thing and you couldn't anticipate it was going to happen, many, many people should die climbing Everest, but they don't. And again, it seems that there's some protective mechanism that stops you climbing higher once you get into trouble and so that you decide, okay, today's not my day, I'll go down. And so then I realized that, that there's this homeostatic control of the brain, which, which wants you to survive, and it won't allow you to kill yourself. And so then we realized that that's the function of the brain during exercise. It's to allow you to exercise as hard as, as is safe, but no harder. Yeah, incredible stuff. Incredible how the brain is really the ultimate regulator. And of course, you were an elite athlete, elite runner. Um, you, from what I hear, followed the typical guidelines in the 80s and 90s of following a higher carb diet and subsequently developed type 2 diabetes. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct, John. And I developed it because my father had the disease and we've got the worst genes possible. They come through all my family on my father's side. There was just a bunch of people with diabetes. And I was a medical doctor and you would have thought that I would have looked out and been worried about it. But I wasn't. For some reason, I thought because I'm running marathons and I'm otherwise healthy, I can't ever get type 2 diabetes. But I learned the hard way that that's not the case. If you're insulin resistant, as I am, and you eat lots of carbohydrates, you will very likely get type 2 diabetes in the long term. It's just a matter of time. And so that was what a learning process. And it, it really inspired me because there are many, many marathon runners who are eating far too much 
carbohydrate. And in the long term, they're going to damage their own health and they will develop type 2 diabetes or any of its complications. And so I'm moving towards telling people, guys, just be cautious on how much carbohydrate you eat. It's completely unnecessary. You can run very, very fast on fat if you train your body properly. Yeah, it's definitely something I see in clinical practice in Toronto with a lot of recreational endurance athletes who are either runners or cyclists, and all of a sudden they're, you know, they're still 20 or 30 pounds overweight, yet they've got all these miles under their belt, and they tend to consume the, the sugars during exercise and higher-carb diets. Can you share with folks how um, Dr. Westman's book was what sort of a catalyst for you in, in, in adopting that low-carb, high-fat approach? Yes, indeed. So what happened was that the night I finished writing Waterlogged, I, I, I sent the book off to the publishers or the editors, I should say, in the United States. And it was like a 30-year anger was just taken from my shoulders because I was so angry with the way I'd been treated for telling people the truth that I predicted that there would be deaths because of over-drinking that was being promoted. And when it happened, I got very frustrated. And then the scientists were clearly so under the influence of the industry that they couldn't see the truth and they wouldn't address it. So it was very frustrating. So anyway, I wrote the book, sent it off, and I woke up the next morning and my brain said, you must go and run and you must run every day for the rest of your life. So I went and ran and had a dreadful run and just by chance came home. And in one of those moments that could have gone either way, I saw an advert on my email for Eric Westman's book, The New Atkins for the New You. And I, I couldn't believe it. I said, Dr. Westman, you've sold out to Atkins to link your name to Atkins, who was trying to kill us. How could you possibly have done that? <laughs> and you're a credible scientist. And then, of course, there was Jeff Verlick and Steve Finney's names as well on the book. And I thought, this is unbelievable. Here are these good scientists and they've sold out. I'm disgusted. And then, of course, my brain, it always offers the alternate argument. And the alternate argument was, maybe they're right. <laughs> <You see? Yeah. laughs> so, so I went and bought the book and I read it. I read the, the introduction and within two hours, I decided that's it. I'm going to try it. I've had enough carbohydrates in my life. I don't need any more. And I just, my health improved spectacularly and my running improved spectacularly. And, and I'm now seven years down the road with type 2 diabetes treated with metformin and the low-carb diet. And if I hadn't done it, I would be today 30 kilograms heavier. I'd be on insulin. I'd have certain complications from type 2 diabetes. And, I, and it, as far as I know, I don't have any complications of type 2 diabetes. And that's the difference. So they, they really saved my life, although they caused me a lot of trouble because <laughs> I started promoting their, their ideas. But uh, it was life-saving for me what, what the advice I got from that book. Yeah, and can you share with folks as we dovetail into this the uh, you know the, the incredulous and challenging situation over the last few years in South Africa with your support of the low-carb approach and trying to help people out? So indeed, so in 2013, in July 2013, uh, a, a chef came to me and he said, you know, we must write a book for endurance athletes and put together recipes. Would you write the foreword? So I said, sure. So anyway, it turned out that when I started writing the foreword, I realized I now had enough knowledge about low-carb diets that I'd actually write more. So I wrote 25,000 words and it became a, a chapter. So we had this fabulous recipe book with 
a lot of revolutionary talk about this new diets, etc. And then we had my chapter saying the science behind low carbohydrate eating, and it just went it just went viral. The book it sold two hundred fifty thousand copies, and in South Africa we only have two hundred fifty thousand readers, so everyone who can read and books. <laughs> So not everyone who can read, everyone who can read a book and who purchased this book bought the book. And that set off a chain reaction. And and the problem was that the South African dietitians now had no answer because the book was saying the opposite to what they were saying. And when they were challenged, they didn't know what to say. And so instead of addressing their problem and modifying their curriculum, they decided that if they could get me out of the situation and uh, defame me and make me look an idiot, then the public would stick with them. And that's what they've tried for the last three years to do. And unfortunately, it hasn't worked. What has happened, it's just given more publicity to this diet in South Africa. And, and finally, 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 the authorities are beginning to suggest, gosh, you know, maybe highly processed foods are the cause of the obesity diabetes epidemic in South Africa. And they'll never credit me with, with being the catalyst for that change. That, that will be impossible. But I'm just proud that it's happening. And I think that there are going to be big changes in the future in South Africa. And we will move towards a, a different dietary guidelines than, than we have today. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, I recently had uh, Dr. Jason Fung on, and particularly as it relates to things like uh, pre-diabetes, diabetes, blood sugar control, it's amazing, the, the benefits of a low-carb diet. And Can you actually walk people through, I mean, the, the, the trial itself in terms of bringing in expert witnesses? I mean, this was a very uh, involved and uh, tenuous time. Yeah, indeed. You see, so by the time the trial came about, I'd actually written the book, Soup Raising Superhero. So the trial was all about me giving advice to, supposedly giving advice to a lady on breastfeeding and weaning. And in fact, I hadn't. I didn't, we don't even know if she exists because no one ever brought her to the trial. And uh, so, I mean, we do know that she exists, but we don't know whether she was breastfeeding and whether she had a child. It was never determined. But the key point was she asked a wee question. She said, moms and babies. And so what I did, I did not give advice. I gave generic medical information. So there never was a case against me, but they forced me into a doctor-patient relationship. They said just by answering anything, any question the public asks you, it doesn't matter if it's a we question or an I question, you immediately enter a doctor-patient relationship, and therefore you've got standards of care that you have to fulfill. And I'd failed them, apparently, uh, because of various things. I'd given the wrong advice, and it was dangerous, etc. Well, it, it never was dangerous because, firstly, the mother didn't follow it. And uh, there was never any harm to her baby. And, and she didn't raise the, raise the complaint. The complaint came from the dietitians. And we have absolute proof now that the dietitians were looking for some way to shut me up. And they worked with the authorities, the Health Professional Council of South Africa, to fashion a, a complaint against me and to prosecute me, even though they broke all their own rules. So the case should never have happened. But once, once I realized it was going to happen, and that they'd broken all the rules. My, my legal team said, listen, Tim, what you have to do is you have to blind them with science. And fortunately, I'd written the book, Superheroes, and I showed it to my chief counsel. And he said, that's it. That's all you have to do is present all that information. So we did. We prevented, I presented personally 40 hours of testimony over nine days. Yeah, and I was cross-examined for three and a half days. 
And then we brought the world authorities. We brought in Nina Teicholt from, from New York, the author of Big Fat Surprise, and she was just unbelievable. I mean, the, the poor old prosecuting lawyer didn't know what to say to her. <laughs> he couldn't cross-examine her. And then we had Zoe Harcombe, who is an unknown genius from Cambridge, from Wales now, in the United Kingdom. And she is just a genius with statistics on, on health matters. And she's just unbelievable. And she showed that there was never any evidence that we should change the low-fat diet. And then Corin Zinn, who was a, was a student of mine, who was a high-carb promoter. She's a dietitian, PhD in dietetics. And then she went to New Zealand, and her prof in New Zealand said to her about four years ago, he said, Corin, I'm hearing stories about this low-carb story. I mean, I know it's rubbish. Please just get the evidence. Accumulate the evidence for me so that I can give lectures showing that this is nonsense. So she went, and because she was open-minded, she, she came back to him and said, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to tell you the opposite. The opposite is that the low-carb is the way we should be going. And so she, she went that way, and she convinced her whole department to go low-carbs. And it's been really interesting because that unit in Auckland advises, provides dietetic advice to world-class athletes, including the All Blacks rugby team, which is the world's greatest sports team. And uh, they've gone increasingly low carbs over the years. So it was interesting. Anyway, Karen also gave brilliant evidence. And she was there because she practices and prescribes low-carb diets to both children and adults. So we presented all the information. And when the decision was made after 25 days in court and, and millions and millions and millions of rands spent, uh, the decision was 10-0. I want on 10, on 10 points, I won all of them. So because the Health Professional Council just isn't going to let it go, they put it on to appeal. So we're going to go back for another five, five days sometime in February, March next year. So we'll – but they, they have no case. And it doesn't matter how many years they try to fight it, they're never going to be able to put a case together. It's incredible stuff, and it's amazing how this is sort of the first time a diet has ever really been uh, held up in the court of law. Would you agree? <laughs> That's right. You know, I'm, I think I'm the, I'm, I mean, I'm definitely the first medical scientist ever to be prosecuted for his opinions on diet, but I'm one of the few medical scientists in history ever to have been prosecuted. You know, you have to go back to Galileo to, to get prosecutions like this. So it's it's really interesting, but what it has done in this country is that at the end of the trial, for example, the South African public was asked to vote. Uh, what did they think about the outcome? And I won 10, one, 10 to 1 in the voting. So the South African public haven't been fooled. They realized that, that this was a, a, a fraudulent attack on me. It was malicious and it had no basis in science. And this is definitely sort of an epidemic problem now in terms of pre-diabetes, diabetes, we're up to almost you know, over 400 million people around the world. Uh, can you explain to folks all the, the various complications in terms of cardiovascular health and uh, amputations, et cetera, that happen from having uh, poor blood sugar control and, and pre-diabetes, diabetes, type 2? I think the problem is that what I didn't understand when I went through medical school, and any doctor in the world probably doesn't understand because they don't get taught this, is that fundamentally a majority of humans are insulin resistant, which means we can't metabolize carbohydrates very well. And when our bodies are exposed to carbohydrates, we hypersecrete insulin to try and control the blood glucose. And insulin, unfortunately, although it is 
it's not working very well on some tissues in people with diabetes. It, it acts very well on other tissues. And it's this over-secretion of insulin acts too well on other tissues that causes arterial damage, for example, and ultimately causes cancer and dementia. So there's a whole group of diseases which are all caused by insulin resistance. And tragically, our model of medicine is that if you have hypertension, which is an insulin-resistant disease, if you have gout, which is an insulin-resistant disease, if you have dementia or cancer or heart disease or obesity, or I hope I've mentioned hypertension, they're all insulin-resistant diseases, and you can take all the medication you like. It's not going to reverse the condition as long as you keep eating carbohydrates. And so that's the issue. You've got to get carbohydrates out of your body to get your insulin down. So that's how the insulin acts. It, it, it makes you hungry and it stores your fat in your fat cells and it damages your arteries. It damages your brain, damages your kidneys, it damages most of the organ systems in the body. And the, the key is to understand first that it's insulin and then in addition it's inflammation. And I'm not all that clear yet exactly where the inflammation is generated. I think it's also from the cereals and grains that we eat, that they are partially responsible for that inflammation, maybe other factors as well. But it's a combination of too much glucose, too much insulin, and too much inflammation that causes those diseases. And our problem is that we don't treat it properly by indicating you must cut the carbohydrates and then you'll be fine. And for a lot of doctors listening in, you know, the normal ranges for a lot of the things that we tend to use, whether it's even fasting glucose or an HA1C, you know, are quite wide and generous. Can you speak to sort of some of the early warning signs for, for docs listening in that uh, a, a patient may be headed down this road? Yeah, I think the first thing is if you, early days, and I'm talking now about children who are six, seven, eight, nine, ten, you want a fasting insulin. And if you're fasting insulin in the units we use, is more than about four or five, I'd start to be worried already. So let's say that you that you you are treating an, an infant or a, a adolescent between five and 10. Maybe the mother was diabetic. Maybe she was obese during her pregnancy. Maybe she ate a high carbohydrate diet. You're concerned once the child's insulin level goes up, then that child is heading towards obesity and diabetes. And so if you were to stop them eating too much carbohydrate already at the age 5, 6, 10, you'd do a lot of good for them. But you know, that's what the case is today, that there are so many ch children, adolescents, who have eaten so much carbohydrate and they're so insulin resistant that they're already headed down the road. But most people, probably 30 or 35, might come to the doctor and the doctor wants to know, is this patient insulin resistant? The fasting insulin may well be elevated, but they may already show damage elsewhere. And the other next test would be what is the fasting glucose, because that will be elevated if the insulin is not working properly. And if the insulin is not working properly and the glucose levels are elevated all the time, then the glycated hemoglobin, the HbA1c, will be elevated to above 5.5%. And that's my cutoff value. Uh, we're told that we only get worried when your HbA1c is above 6.5%, but that's too late. You've already got diabetes. If your value is 5.5%, in 10 years, it's going to be 65 but why wait? So already at a value of 5.5, I would be advising those patients to reduce their carbohydrates and to eat more fat. 
and they will never get diabetes. It's it's so simple. And the tragedy is that that we don't understand that this is a hyperinsulinemic insulin resistant state. We don't have to call it the disease. Just call it hyperinsulinemia or insulin resistance and treat it with low carbs. And then at 5.5, you'll stop. All this problem is it pre-diabetes. Yes, of course it's pre-diabetes, but most of us are pre-diabetic on the day we're born. So we mustn't worry about terminology. Let, let's act on, on when we've got the evidence that the, the condition is worsening. And once your HbA1c is above 5.5, you, you're heading down a one-way street. But if you keep your HbA1c at 5.5 or lower, and it never goes up to 6, you're going to be fine. You're not going to get any of these dis- chronic diseases that we mentioned. Yeah, it's amazing how the you know the message is so so simple, and of course it immediately knocks off all the processed foods, all the added sugars, and things that you know in today's food environment are so ubiquitous everywhere. And of course, you know, really trigger those parts of the brain that that want us to consume more, very hyper palatable. Can you also talk about the role of the liver in all this, and and some of the tests like GGT or liver enzyme tests that might yeah. highlight some problems for folks? Sure. So so what happens if you're insulin resistant? The the key driver for arterial diseases, you have to have a fatty liver. So the, under the action of insulin, the liver stores more and more fat as triglyceride, and you get the fatty liver. And then that causes cirrhosis of the liver and ultimately can cause uh, liver damage and, and death from, from liver failure, which is becoming one of the commonest causes of death in the United States. Surprisingly, it's not alcohol-induced. As you know, it's, it's diet-induced. But the point is... A majority of doctors that I speak to think that fat in the diet gives you a fatty liver. I mean, it's obvious. <laughs> but it's not. It's, it's sugar, particularly fructose, and excessive carbohydrate in the diet that causes this fatty liver. And the more fatty liver you have, the worse your lipoproteins, the cholesterol. You get the wrong cholesterol. And the other variables we mentioned about the inflammation and the insulin, you get your metabolic syndrome get progressively worse. So a GGT value that is elevated, and I'm not sure what units you use in, in, in Canada, but the reality is once it starts to rise, you're also in trouble because that will indicate an insulin-resistant liver that is pouring out the wrong lipoproteins, which will then damage your arteries. And the other marker is ferritin, interestingly, that high ferritins go with this insulin-resistant syndrome. So... But but my view is that you your GGT just tells you how bad your liver is affected, and you, the HbA1c would be a better measure of your insulin resistance. If your GGT is elevated as well, then you're even in worse shape because your liver's in real bad trouble. And then you'd measure triglycerides and HDL cholesterol, but particularly triglycerides, and they must be below one millimole per liter. That if it's above one millimole per liter, you're in trouble. You're eating too much carbohydrate. And again, just to mention that that cholesterol has no predictive value whatsoever for anything, except ill health if it's low. So <laughs> we got the cholesterol story all wrong, and it's you much better to measure fasting insulin, HbA1c, gamma glutamyl transferase, and and triglycerides and HDL cholesterol. They're much better markers of your level of insulin resistance, and whether you're heading down this insulin resistance road towards type 2 diabetes absolutely and you know i had uh, nina teichels on the show talking all about the you know the cholesterol and saturated fat story and um just the last question there around some of the lab tests is there a place for the home ir um, measurement in terms of uh, clinical practice for docs 
I'm sure it is. It's of some value, but I would I would still like to go with the the variable the the, the more these less traditional values, and I would like to rather fa measure fasting insulin and HbA1c. Those would be the two that I would like to focus on, and then to convince the athlete that you or the person that you can do something quickly. You check the triglycerides, and if you cut the carbs, the triglycerides will come down quickly before the the HbA1c will start to correct. The you can see the triglycerides coming down. So that those are some of the practical points that that I would stress. Phenomenal stuff. Listen, Professor Noakes, you've shared so many great insights today. You know your compilation of books are such an incredible resource. Um, obviously, you've accomplished so many great things in your career. Can you tell <laughs> folks a little bit about the Noakes Foundation and what you're up to these days? Yes, indeed. So when our book, The Real Meal Revolution, did so well, we obviously got quite a lot of money back, and I hate paying the tax man more than I have to. So I've always donated all the money that I earned from my books into trusts. And one of the trusts funds a scientist in our research unit here at the University of Cape Town, gives him a full salary. And that's from Law of Running and all those other books. But then when The Real Meal came along, I said, well, let's use this money to promote research of low carbohydrate diets. And so we invested that money and we continue to invest a whole bunch of other monies into the Noakes Foundation. And we have a tiny, tiny organization, but it has quite a big reach. And our goal is to improve the quality of evidence for low carbohydrate eating, but also to work out how do you get poor people to eat well? Because we've done, now done a whole series of interventions in the poorer communities of Cape Town, uh, where I live. And we show that if you take the poorest people off the diets that they're eating, their health improves absolutely spectacularly. And most importantly, they start to take control of their lives. And the poorest people have the least control of their lives. And once you can teach them that if you can control what you eat, you can control your hunger you can control your weight, you can control your hypertension, you can control your diabetes. You don't have to go to the hospital all the time and use medications which don't work and give over control of your life to somebody else. Actually, you can be in control. And, and we really think that that's probably the most important component of this diet is that it actually allows you to take control, take charge, and to become to be in charge of your own health and then to see how healthy you become. And that has huge spin-offs, and particularly for the poorest people in the communities. So that's what the Noakes Foundation is. Part of our, our mission is to show the authorities in South Africa and then ultimately the rest of the world that it is possible for poor people to eat well even on the, on the amount of money they're already paying in for their food. The idea that this diet is expensive is not true. We've shown that in South African terms, you can you can eat this diet at, for 30 rand per day, which is uh, probably two dollars, two or three Canadian dollars a day. And if you can eat healthily for two to three dollars a day, that's amazing. That's an amazing achievement, and we we think we can do it. So the idea that you can't that poor people can't eat well because it's food's too expensive, it's not. You can provide food to those communities that is extremely healthy and is certainly much better than the sugar-laden processed foods that they're eating and that it doesn't cost much and the health benefits are incredible. 
That's phenomenal work and definitely a myth that keeps getting perpetuated is that idea of cost. And so it's so great to see um, you guys dispelling that myth and all the phenomenal work you're doing in the local community. Um, now, I want to respect your time here. So on the last question here, on the personal side of things, you're such a busy man. Can you share with folks a little bit about your morning routine? Do you start the day with tea, coffee, exercise, writing? What does that look like for you? That's great. So it will usually start with coffee and coffee with cream, and then I will usually only eat at lunch. So I eat one meal a day, perhaps one and a half meals a day. It'll either be a lunch or it could be a breakfast or lunch. Uh, I'm currently in a 24-hour fast, so I haven't eaten since lunch yesterday, and I've had lots of tea. So in fact, I'm probably into 25 hours of fasting now. And uh, you can judge the quality of my thinking on the basis of how I spoke to you today. Exactly. But what I found was that in my trial, I just, I just fasted the whole time. For each day, I would fast the whole day and give nine hours, or give five or six hours testimony. And uh, I just get better the, the longer I fast. So I'm into the fasting mode. And I, I ran yesterday afternoon. I've got lectures this afternoon, so I probably won't run today. But I will usually run most afternoons, as I, lunchtime is my preferred time to run. So that's my eating patterns. I eat very, very simply. I just eat the the, the banting, the, the low carb diet. It's it's lots of fish and meat and cheese and eggs and dairy and and relatively sparing vegetables. I'm not a great vegetable man and minimal fruit and, and lots of nuts as well. And and that's it. And I've been eating that way for six years and seems to be working pretty well for me. Absolutely. Listen, that's phenomenal stuff. Uh, once again, Professor Noakes, really honored to have you on the show today. Massive thank you for, for taking the time. Where can people listening in keep up with all of your phenomenal work and stay connected with you and your foundation on uh, social media? Well, certainly they can follow uh, the Noakes Foundation on website. It's just the Noakes Foundation. And and I'm on Twitter at Prof Tim Noakes. Uh, I I love being on Twitter. I've, I've learned so much from it. I've, almost all that I've learned from Twitter has been following people like Jason Fung and Nina and many other of the world authorities on the low-carb diet. I, I literally photocopy four or five articles a day because they tweet that these new articles are coming out, and it's, it's phenomenal. It is the best way to keep current with the new knowledge. It's really exciting because... Every day, I mean, I, it's without fail, every day I get excited by the new information that's coming through. Fantastic stuff. Well, we'll definitely include all those links in a podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again, Professor Noakes, for taking the time. Thanks for everyone else for tuning in. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at drbubs. You can use the hashtag drbubspp. If you enjoy the show, please head over to iTunes, subscribe, and give us your rating of the show. Really appreciate it and see everyone again next week. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.